you're listening to How to Stan. For more information about the show, as well as my other podcast, 17 Karat K-Pop, and how you can support both of them, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com backslash how hyphen to hyphen stan dot html. Enjoy the show! In 1999, a Gallup poll showed that 33% of Americans thought Elvis was the greatest individual rock and roll star of all time. 33%. Second place, Mick Jagger with just 5%. He somehow earned 1% of the vote in the best rock and roll band of all time category too. A 1997 Gallup poll showed 45% of Americans considered themselves fans of his. And remember, this was decades after his death. 71% said he was a positive influence on American culture and society. Only 17% said they viewed him as having a negative impact on culture and society. 4 in 10 said they would be willing to pay to see Elvis if he were alive today and performing. And, out of the people who reported not considering themselves Elvis fans, 18% of them said they would still pay to see him perform live, if given the chance. Not just a passive admiration, but there are many active ways Elvis fans have been able to show their devotion to the king. Just to name a few, there's the Direct from Graceland exhibition that went to Memphis, Australia, and then Victoria, which displayed over 300 Elvis artifacts and had a huge turnout. Then there's the annual Elvis Week, full of Elvis impersonators who make a living being ETAs, Elvis tribute artists. They even have their own meet and greets and stuff, they're celebrities in their own right, and there are even some PTAs, Priscilla tribute artists, like Darlene Perez, who makes her own Priscilla and Elvis cosplay. She compares it to Snow White at Disneyland. She's dressing up, Taurus posts for pics with her, and she makes their day. Even if they know it's not the real Snow White, the real Priscilla, part of them suspends belief and enjoys the moment. Darlene, aka Darling Presley, to the Elvis fan club, is part of an Elvis fan club called the Rockahula Girls, one of the largest in the USA. She really seems in it for the community. After all, club membership is free, and the money they do end up raising goes to the Alzheimer's Association. That is similar to what other Elvis fan clubs do too. Keep membership free or cheap and raise a bunch of money for a specific charity. Darlene is also famous for running the site Girls Gone Elvis and she works as both hostess and talent booker at the Elvis Honeymoon Hideaway, the place where Elvis and Priscilla lived and spent their honeymoon. She even has a picture on the wall there. A portrait of Darlene was hung up after she won an art contest in 2009. This portrait, as well as her online posts in general on the site and MySpace, popularized a new term that is now part of the Elvis fan vocab, the Scylla head tilt, noting a specific way Priscilla would tilt her head in pictures. Aside from artistic endeavors and cosplay, there are many other ways Elvis fans have shown their devotion to the king and tried to be charitable at the same time. Time for a super wholesome example. A superfan in his 20s named Aaron Arder from Southeast London started performing as Elvis by the age of 10. It actually runs in his family, one of his uncles is a fellow Elvis impersonator, and a different uncle is a Cliff Richard imitator. He's always loved dressing up as Elvis, he has a closet full of Elvis clothes, plus a mirror with a picture of Elvis on it he kisses for good luck. He even owns a pink Cadillac in a TCB brass ring meaning Elvis's catchphrase, taking care of business. 
This going out on the streets, performing as Elvis, has been a cool way for Arter to express himself, especially because he is autistic and has ADHD. He often bursts into songs mid-conversation and finds a lot of joy in singing Elvis songs. Does he get shamed for being a grown man dressing up as Elvis? Yes, he does. But he says when he does, he just dismisses it, copes by watching Elvis videos on YouTube and singing Elvis songs because Elvis is what boosts his mood and he just wants people to let him enjoy that. As took place in the USA as well, in London they had a clapping for carers activity. Where every Thursday night, people in his neighborhood would go out during March of 2020, spring 2020, to clap for frontline healthcare workers who were taking care of COVID patients. And this was a win-win scenario, Arter thought, because since COVID blocked him from performing in different clubs and other parts of the local scene, he still had an opportunity to have an audience if he went outside to dance every Thursday as well as other times when neighbors would come out of their homes to watch him perform in a socially distanced way. Neighbors actually turned out in significant amounts, particularly with the help of retired railway worker Michael Peacock. Michael actually first met Arter in this pub at an open mic night, but what really left a lasting impression on Michael was seeing Arter in character as Elvis made him want to partner up with him in the future. So Michael took Arter under his wing, kind of became his de facto manager, helped spread the word on social media, passed out flyers, got excitement buzzing for his weekly, if not more than once a week, shows. They eventually realized they could use this attention not just for levity's sake, but also for charity's sake. And they turned it into a fundraiser, raising over 4,000 pounds for Salvation Army. And actually, this local chapter of Salvation Army was about a week away from running out of funds to feed the homeless. So they basically gave life support to that chapter. Arter has gotten several awards for his efforts, including the Jack Petchy Foundation Award, which is basically an outstanding achievement award for young people in their charitable endeavors. He also was awarded after a performance he was invited to do at the Porthcall Elvis Fest, the world's largest Elvis festival at the time. Although lockdowns have lifted, Arter continues to do these street shows and will continue to, quote, as long as there is the need to help the vulnerable. After performing at a dream event, the Porthcall Elvis Fest, his reaction, quote, next time I want my mom to come with me. Super sweet story, and many like it, as this giving and familial atmosphere seems to charge the energy at so many Elvis events. The world's largest Elvis festival is in Collingwood. We'll talk about the backstory more in a minute, but just to give you an idea of the level of effort and attention that goes into this schedule. The event has the Elvis impersonator contest, open mics, a gospel showcase, Lots of fan club hosted booths and stuff and opportunities to donate to their designated charities. Separate invite-only contests. A live music series just for not even impersonators, but any musician to get their voice heard. Story times, unclear what that means. Street partying, street dancing, a classic car parade, a candlelight vigil as this is a yearly event around the time of Elvis's death. Vegas-style shows across town even an Elvis-themed Zumba class. Fun fact, the first ever impersonator, winner of the Elvis contest there, performed there every year since he won, except 2001, when he had just lost his leg to a drunk driver, but he actually went back to perform the very next year again, like it didn't happen, just with a new prosthetic leg. 
street performances, dress up, fan art displays, online chatter, and another way Elvis fans show their love for the king. Trying to break a world record for the largest gathering of Elvises in the world, of people dressed as Elvis. Previously, that record in 2010 went to this group of Nike employees who were at a sales convention in Vegas. The record at the time that they broke for most Elvis lookalikes in the same location, 645 people. Then that record got broken a few years later at a North Carolina casino that had 895 lookalikes, ranging from ages 3 to 80 and from all over the world. It's actually become kind of a friendly competition between Elvis Fest to see who beats whose record. Collingwood actually directly challenged the Australian version of the Elvis Fest to top their record. They're pretty explicit about the competition. Some backstory about this Ontario-Canada Collingwood Festival that became the world's largest Elvis festival, despite Collingwood having nothing to do with Elvis. A woman named Karen Burland came up with the idea because at the time they were trying to find ways to boost town revenue, draw tourists there, and she thought, who's a musician? Everyone knows. If you reference them, they all know who you're talking about, regardless of demographics or anything like that. Elvis Presley. It sounds like she wasn't even a mega fan of his or anything. She just thought it was what the town needed to really draw tourists. She had so many skeptics, and then finally when they were on board certifying this festival, they had some pretty narrow plans for it. But Karen Berland continued to dream big and say, no, 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 we're making this a bigger festival than that. We're adding this, this, and this. It was a risk, but it certainly paid off. A team of volunteers really put their souls into this, and it was officially kicked off with the help of Elvis impersonator Billy Keehan in 1995. The first fest in 1995 featured 30 to 35 acts. Different reports gave different estimates, but that would grow to over 100 impersonators per year performing there. Estimates also vary about turnout, but tend to stay in the ballpark of 10,000 visitors, coming from all over the world, taking flights from other countries even, for this big Elvis fan gathering. This event was paid for actually by the town. Town funded at least from 2003 to 2019. Let me back up for a minute. So it first hit a snag and seemed to be on life support in 97, just two years after it launched. Ken, Billy Ken, the impersonator who started this, left his management role. It could have gone all downhill from there. But another excited volunteer, Rosemary O'Brien, picked up the torch, as did the former mayor, Teddy Geds, who helped publicize the event and even hosted a walk, a fundraiser, to gin up excitement for it. He said he really wanted to help the festival survive because he saw it as a big tourism help. And he was right. Then this next big snag was in 2019 when the festival was no longer going to be funded by the town itself. Instead, it would be transferred to private ownership, which as of recording time has not panned out. So the festival kind of just ended in 2019, hasn't been revived since. Again, as of recording time. We'll see. The point is, the love for Elvis is still present, and still self-fulfilling in a way, because the support was just kind of manufactured in this instance, not meaning it's fake, I just mean manufactured in the sense they had to provoke the excitement in local officials to let this event debut, by proving to them there was an audience for it. And because of this event, people went away impressed with Elvis and enjoying their interactions with other fans, enjoying being a member of the fandom, and then thinking, yeah, this excitement is worth it. There is an audience for this. 
So it's a, it's a circular thing. Public interest and enthusiasm was kind of put into the universe and then came to fruition and continues to. You may be wondering, can a town just do this under his name? And actually, yes, Elvis Presley Enterprises did reach a licensing agreement and give this event its stamp of approval. However, this one guy, Reverend Dorian Baxter, who called himself Elvis Priestley, basically got kicked out and made them nervous about the licensing agreement being terminated because Elvis Priestley would perform at fan funerals. And the festival basically said, yeah, this is dicey. We don't want anything that could stand even a fraction of a chance of ticking off Elvis Presley Enterprises, making them feel like we're portraying Elvis in a negative light, etc. So we want nothing to do with your funeral services. But anyway, again, the love for Elvis lived on. So what is this love for Elvis all about? First of all, let's get some technical, logistical reasons for Elvis's fame addressed. First of all, this festival is relatively cheap, fun entertainment. Although certain events require you getting a second ticket to enter, so you have to pay not just an entrance fee, a general ticket, but more than just a general admission ticket. But tickets, if you just wanted to attend, in the past have ranged from $20 to $50, compared to a lot of day-long excursions, relatively cheap way to spend the day. Then there was the clever team working with Elvis on his marketing. When Elvis entered the army, his team got to work preparing physical album copies. They got printing, distribution prepared, and songs he had recorded before he left, so that the second Elvis came home, he could drop new records. And when he didn't have new music, there was probably a new box set of old classics on the way that stirred up old, exciting love for him and his throwbacks. Fans really helped with the physical distribution of these tokens of your fandom affiliation, these status symbols too, with like bootleg sales of t-shirts, buttons, etc. The world of the Elvis fandom was kind of, in some ways, ahead of its time. And superfan Virginia Coons is also worth thanking for that. She was kind of a liaison in contact with Elvis himself and members of his inner circle. So she kept making sure fans globally could be heard, their feedback could be heard, and tangibly, literally, Elvis would be heard. She would help make sure distribution stayed global. She kept a global network going before the internet age. So that's one explanation for the love and passion towards Elvis. A second reason is so many people describe him as having just a genuine nature and humility, constantly spending hours signing autographs for fans, talking about how fans motivated him to keep going, even when performing became physically taxing for him. People also respected that he was known locally his whole life. He didn't leave Tennessee. He didn't move to Hollywood or New York or LA. Even when he became a movie star too, he didn't move to where all the action is in the worlds of music and movies. He stayed in his hometown. People knew him like a neighbor because he was their neighbor. People also were charmed by him for doing things like in 1960 when this USS Memorial was not getting the funds it needed to complete construction. So Elvis decided to put together this benefit concert and raise 50k to help them finish the job. Then there are fellow musicians who think so highly of him, including John Lennon, who actually formed his first ever band after feeling inspired by Elvis. And he's literally said, quote, without Elvis there would be no Beatles. He is viewed as helping popularize a bunch of different musical styles and trends. 
Did he take those styles from many black artists before him? Yes, but some people still say credit is due to making those sounds more mainstream and helping people see the coolness of them, basically. He really helped popularize some Southern gospel. He worked with the Jordanaires all the time, this gospel quartet. He also was part of the new-at-the-time fuzz guitar trend and ahead of other trends as well. Reverence for him also comes from people who grew up with him. Not just because of the time frame, but because of older relatives. Arter first got into Elvis thanks to his grandma, who he used to have sing-alongs with. And he said one of his motivations to keep doing his Elvis performances is because he knows she would be proud. And he wants to honor her memory since she passed away. Then there's Elvis documentary director Amy Berman, we'll talk about later. She met with Elvis fans in Italy, who recalled feeling close to their parents because of it. And one actually started watching Elvis movies at age nine after her parents died and felt comforted because Elvis had the nature that reminded her of her dad. Then there's the Priscilla impersonator, Darlene Perez, crediting her grandma with getting her into this. She's fond memories of being rocked, bounced up and down on her grandma's knee as a little kid to Elvis songs, and family members constantly gifting her Elvis merch and memorabilia. Other fans who have been interviewed at the festival, in documentaries, and elsewhere, I'll link to them on my site as usual, express joy because Elvis inspired them to start their own bands and pursue their own music careers that played around with different styles and instruments and had funky out-there outfits and dance moves. They felt more comfortable in their own skin as performers because of him. Some even just are grateful because they gained confidence in the desire to perform original stuff and become a true artist in their own right after experience as an impersonator. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery and maybe a sincere form of motivation too. And people have also talked about going around the world and singing Elvis songs or hearing someone mention Elvis. Anywhere in the world, people know who you're talking about and they know at least a few bars of an Elvis song. It's this uniting feeling to be emotionally invested in someone so impactful. The true depth of emotions and love for Elvis was really, really on full display when he passed away of a heart attack in 1977. The public viewing of his casket was immense. Mourners lining up for hours and hours in the August summer heat, so some even passed out while waiting to see his casket. All the florists in town were sold out. Call lines had crashed. It was a hugely public mourning period. Larry Busser, who reported on Elvis's death for the Memphis Commercial Appeal, a local paper, said, quote, My managing editor said, Busser, you will never cover a bigger story in your life. You might cover something more important, but you will never cover a bigger story. And he's always been right, unquote. In addition to all these sweet and sentimental reasons for the appeal of Elvis, there are also more conspiratorial reasons. The intrigue surrounding him keeps him popular, keeps people talking about him to this day. Before we get to the death hoax rumors, a couple other rumors that have spread and been gossiped about for decades now related to Elvis. First of all, there's the gold piano. The facts really got twisted, so the rumor kept being that, oh my gosh, Elvis's piano sold for just a dollar? A freaking gold piano owned by Elvis sold for a dollar? The true story is that this entrepreneur bought it for two million, but then loaned it to the Nashville Country Music Hall of Fame for a dollar a year. 
and actually it was a regular piano. Priscilla just had it painted gold after Elvis's death. Then there are the rumors about his famous blue jumpsuit, that it was designed to secretly pocket a gun, despite the jumpsuit's designers specifically saying they didn't design it with that in mind. Then there are rumors about My Happiness, the name of Elvis's first ever record. Some say it was his first big demo. Like, even as a little kid, he was ready to send that to a producer. Others say he was just being a funny little kid who wanted to know what his voice sounded like recorded. The origins of why he did that are unclear. My thought is that he is just goofing off as a kid, just wanted to see what his voice sounded like. He apparently didn't even own a record player at the time, so he went to a friend's house to listen to it and left it there. He forgot it, and it stayed at this friend's house for years and years, until it became valued at 300 k and Jack White bought it at an auction. And there are rumors about his death. Both doctors and a coroner have explicitly confirmed his death. And a Gallup poll shows that the Elvis is alive theories are believed, were believed as of 1997 by just 4% of Americans. So this is totally a minority. But some fans never accepted his death as fact. And it's been easier, I guess, psychologically to act like he's still alive and just wanted to hide from the spotlight and live a secret life after faking his death. So here's the evidence they point to online to this day. First of all, there was a black helicopter sighted multiple times at Graceland, including one that arrived a few hours before reports that Elvis was found dead. So some fans think he actually was whisked away in that black helicopter and flown to Bermuda to live a private life. Then there is the fact his middle name is spelled Ron on his gravestone, A-A-R-O-N instead of A-R-O-N. To be clear, Elvis's technical middle name is A-A-R-O-N, which matches his gravestone, but he actually had it changed to A-R-O-N later on in life. Some people think that was like his little tribute to Jesse Guerin Presley, G-A-R-O-N, a stillborn twin of his. But some think this was a, an intentional misspelling meant to signify, hey, the real Elvis Aaron Presley, Elvis A-R-O-N Presley, is still alive and well. Okay, to be clear, I still don't believe any of this stuff, but I've got to admit this next piece of evidence is really something. This actually did make me pause and question a lot, because it feels like a very bizarre coincidence. There are two alleged movie cameos of an older Elvis. One is the movie Bubba Hotep from 2002, which is about an old Elvis living in a nursing home, chatting it up with an old JFK, who some conspiracy theorists also believe is still alive. Then there's the presumed Home Alone cameo. This is the one that made me feel like, whoa, that is bizarre. Home Alone came out 13 years after Elvis died, but people think it's odd that Home Alone is directed by Chris Columbus, who also directed an Elvis project, Heartbreak Hotel, a movie about a group of teens who kidnap Elvis. Plus, in the movie, the main character, Kevin, he has a scene where he lip-syncs to White Christmas, and he has his hair slicked back Elvis-style. And Macaulay Culkin's character, Kevin McAllister, has a name where you can take letters from it and rearrange them, and it says, I am Elvis. I know, this is some Tom Riddle stuff happening here. There have been other quote-unquote sightings as well. On what would have been his 82nd birthday, the Elvis Presley is Alive Facebook page posted this picture they caught of a man in Graceland, who they thought looked like an elderly Elvis, with security around him. Then there was the sighting of a groundskeeper who looked like Elvis. 
Bob Joyce was thought to be Elvis, this pastor in Arkansas, who bears quite a resemblance to him. They thought Elvis may have just taken up a new life under a pseudonym as a pastor. Bob Joyce has, for the record, explicitly said that's not true. There was also a sighting at a Memphis airport, and then a different sighting for someone using the name John Burroughs, which was one of Elvis's aliases. Then this photographer, Mike Joseph, took a picture at Graceland that he later thought looked like Elvis was in the background behind the pool house door, a claim Elvis's road managers refuted. Three separate Elvis sightings in 1989 actually led to some to create the Elvis Sighting Society to keep track. So a small portion of the fandom, but a passionate one nonetheless. Okay, this part I will admit is a little odd too. Again, I don't believe this, but you can see how some people who are conspiratorially minded think that they can put together an argument here. Some fans think they have caught Elvis's loved ones slipping up in interviews to indicate he is still secretly alive and well. In 2005, his wife Priscilla was on Oprah, and she was talking about him and said, It's exactly like what he said the other day. Before she backtracked and said, it's like what you said the other day. His daughter, Lisa Marie, gave a non-response and was really cagey when in 2003, Larry King asked her if she ever felt communication with her dad, like a presence. Obviously, she may have just felt caught off guard by such a deep emotional question about talking to people who have passed on, but conspiratorially minded people may assume, hey, she's cagey and nervous about answering because... She does still literally communicate with him on this earth. One person who fiercely argues Elvis didn't die is Gail Brewer Giorgio, who wrote a book called Is Elvis Alive? in 1988. This was the product of her combing through and analyzing tons of FBI documents and coming to the conclusion that Elvis had gone into the Witness Protection Program. So here's her theory. Elvis really did have deep pride and respect for America and the FBI. He was in the military before he wanted to. He was more than willing to offer services to the FBI, should they ask. Then, as the theory goes, the FBI reached out saying, Hey, you have ties to these people we are keeping tabs on related to an airplane sale. So your airplane sale with them means you have an in with them. You can gain their trust. So can you infiltrate their group for us? This organization was nicknamed the Fraternity. Once there were suspicions raised that amid the Fraternity members was a mole, he was entered into witness protection. Some quotes from the author, quote, Elvis faked his death because he was going to be killed and there was no doubt about it. Do I know if Elvis is alive today? No, I don't, but I know he didn't die on August 16th. I know what he really did. The world needs to know that Elvis Presley put his life on the line. If I don't do this for Elvis, nobody is going to. She also claims her research is very thorough and credible because she's not even a fan not biased in any way, never even owned a single piece of Elvis merch or music. Here's what's true. The FBI actually did have a file in Elvis Presley's name, but that file was created for totally unrelated extortion attempts the FBI had to look into. Those documents do say Presley, quote, spoke favorably of the FBI, was impressed with them, and offered his, quote, services in any way should they need them. 
but throughout over 760 FBI documents that have been made public from the period of 1956 to 1980, well after his death. There is no mention of Presley specifically. In a different author, Patrick Lacey, reached the opposite conclusion in the book Elvis Decoded. Quote, the FBI files are available to the public. There's nothing in there. All the evidence points to death, the medical evidence, the eyewitness report. To have him have faked his death would have required the silence in the services of literally hundreds, if not thousands of people over the years. I want to leave you with a really interesting summary of fandom culture in this depth of it from the director I mentioned earlier, Annie Berman, who directed The Faithful, The King, The Pope, The Princess. This is a documentary about Elvis, the Pope, and Princess Diana. The backstory is bonkers to me. She said on a trip to the Vatican in 1999, she saw a ton of merch for Pope John Paul II. Yeah, merch for the guy who preaches against commercialism. Baseballs, potato chips, snow globes, and what really made her stop and think, what the heck, was a giant colorful swirly lollipop with the Pope's face on it. She said, quote, that made me think of Elvis Presley. What image would sit comfortably on a lollipop? Yeah, I don't know. Then when asked, still, why did you put these seemingly random stars together? She just said, quote, I really feel they found me. Okay. Then she felt compelled to visit Graceland and booked her trip for Elvis Week. She went into it thinking it would be pretty dumb and weird, but she left with all her judgment gone, feeling like, wow, that was so welcoming and familial and lovely. She does also point out it was a cool way to look at three different realms of culture, religion, monarchy, music. In the documentary, which by the way I will link to on my site, looks at just the question of where people, if they ever do, draw the line between worship, like of the Pope, and standing someone, and being a fan. That's a conversation I'm both very interested in and very wary of because I am so passionate about letting people be passionate about stuff and being a fandom member in many ways myself. And I don't like the constant stereotyping of fan behavior as cultish. And we're kind of borderline comparing it to that sort of groupthink when you're saying we worship our stars like deities. But maybe there's truth to that. So it, it's, it's tough to have those conversations. But she does provoke some interesting thought about where do we draw the line? Personally, I think we should draw the line at authority in official capacities. Like, if it's someone you call a king or a queen in your life, that's fine. But if it's a literal king or queen, don't stand. I say if it's a politician, a preacher, someone in not a lingo-related, but an official authoritative position, that's when I say we should back off the stand culture. But that's just my take. There's this interesting quote from Berman that I don't know if I agree with, but it's interesting. She's describing these three separate followers as, quote, charming in their sheer lack of pretension. They appear to understand on some level that their obsession with these public figures stems from an emptiness in their personal lives, unquote. Interesting from that same piece, quote, the greater analogy to which Berman does explicitly allude is quite profound. Burn mentions a statement made by her therapist that when nothing seems relevant anymore, a person is inclined to see importance in the irrelevant. It's a poignant statement that matches up almost perfectly with the dozens of interviews Berman conducts. 
fan-to-fan chats with frequent references to obscure eBay purchases or graven images in which Berman herself starts to want to believe. I think what the gist is there is the fandoms find ways to make something out of nothing. And as much as this is kind of framed in a kind of judgy way to me, kind of negative way, I think we could reframe this as a positive, that we're finding ways to make meaning in our lives out of the culture around us. We're finding ways to apply it to our lives, to turn that into tangible products, in-person relationships, things in the quote-unquote real world. That some people say it's trivial, it's just a blank, why are you doing this to hunt down that merch or to get those tickets? Why are you going to extreme lengths for what at the end of the day doesn't matter? But at the same time, it's cool because that's what fandom behavior is for. It's for taking what people don't see value in and pointing out, no, it does matter, and here's why. I still think fandom behavior is super cool. Of course it can cross the line, though. I don't like the thought of a Pope lollipop. But it, it's an interesting, thought-provoking thing to see, especially since Elvis is considered this king, the king, before it was used like as slang for a bunch of celebs. That's it for me today. I hope I left you with a lot to think about, and I'll talk to you all again very soon. Bye, everyone.